0: Welcome back to The Consequences Podcast with Paul McNulty and Sean McCreevy.
1: Every day I pass the day that you got to me Baby, I believe that you're a star oh. Everyone's a winner,
2: baby, that's the, truth. that's the truth Making love to you is such a thrill Phil Thornalley has left a zealig-like imprint on the best of British rock and pop over the past 40 years. He's our guest today. He's written two number ones, for example. Now I must admit I wasn't familiar with these, but my daughter confirmed for me that they are classics. Um, he's written a standard in the shape of Torn. He's won an engineering Grammy with the Thompson Twins. He's been the singer in Johnny Hate's Jazz. He's been the bass player in The Cure and uh, a little closer to home. Uh, perhaps he's, he produced the first album by Wax Magnetic Heaven. He's also a, a longtime collaborator, friend and neighbour to Graham Goldman. So, I mean, that's for all those reasons and hopefully many more that we'll get to. We're thrilled to have him with us today. Hello, Phil, and welcome.
3: Hello. Thank you very much, guys. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Looking forward to talking a lot of crap about (laughs) stuff. I just have to correct one thing I was nominated for the Grammy oh okay I didn't win it and I got to tell you the I went in the old days when the record company used to pay for you to go this was for a Thompson Twins record I was Mm. best pop engineer Mm. and and, uh, when they give that award you know that the grammy's start at half past 8 in the morning nobody realizes that yeah. and i'm in the in the uh with my partner julie so we're there at half past 8 and it's going to go on and peak with Tina Turner and Prince 12 hours later oh, when, okay. by which time i've taken magic mushrooms anyway <laughs> uh, but at half past 8 in the morning in this massive um you know, the uh, Staple Stadium, it's called something like that. You know? Oh, yeah. 3,000 seater. And there's <laughs> me, Julie, um, and nobody else apart from Michael McDonald, about 20 rows ahead, who's been ah. about to win best soul vocal performance for somebody with a nice beard. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, so anyway, uh, and when the uh, winner was announced for the Engineering Award, it was rightfully no it was wrongfully i thought given to the guy that had done chicago 21
2: Mm. when in
3: fact the best record in my opinion at that time was lionel rich's um yeah you know his big can't
2: slow down was it the the big the
3: big Uh, that was probably the one
2: uh, yeah yeah. so oh my uh, goodness robbed oh no No, so you mean when they're actually giving out awards it's not full up it sounds terrible it's just half past eight in the morning yeah, even so,
3: By half past eight in the evening it's packed and full well, yeah, full of oh. all these music business types that you hit and read about and you go like the nightmare networkers, you know, um, people. Just uh, I, I haven't got anything positive s- to say about that, you know, like sub executives or people mm. that used to be in a band and and announced uh, it, It's 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 like one of those uh, carpets in a in a. Um, in a pub, you know, it's kind of smells of sick and bad oh. and everything, and yeah, that's a you have a visceral reaction. You meet these people and you go, oh, Christ,
4: she's <laughs> my she's
3: my cursing. Anyway, so just clearing that up, I didn't win the Grammy, and I still haven't won one just yet. Oh. Um, <laughs>
0: I presume this—the nomination was for your work on uh, what was it? Quick step, uh, quick quick step sidekick, or into the gap? Yeah, yeah.
3: Into the gap by the Thompson Twins, which we'd had massive success with. Hold me now was a big hit. Doctor Doctor was a big hit. In those days, you know, people talk about millions and millions of streams now, but in those days, sales-wise, that album had sold four million, which was which was you know, and it was a hit in America and in the UK. And it had quite an original sound to it, um, produced by one of my mentors, Alex Sadkin, who uh, had also produced Grace Jones, Bob Marley, and went on to produce Foreigner. So mm. I was in good hands. It should have, it really should have been him that was nominated. But, but uh, hey,
0: it's a it, fine it, record. I'm, I, I'm proudly clutching my my uh, yeah. precious copy of. Of, of Into the Gap I love Thompson Twins actually um great work on there Phil and and I've got an other sort of fond vinyl uh goodies here one of them is is this uh double album um yeah. Todd Rundgren's Todd and the reason I, I I bring that up to the camera Phil is that uh, you're kind enough to share a, a story with us that there was a an epiphany moment for you wasn't there
2: can you tell yeah, us about
0: about perhaps where you came in as as a fledgling producer?
3: Well, I like to think of that album that that was my gateway drug to the world of Todd Rungren. I was about fourteen, and my neighbor, my actual neighbor when I was a kid, is was uh, Mike Nasito. Mike Nacito, who's one of the guys in Johnny Hates Jazz, has enjo- enjoyed a career. So the two of us are the same age and learning chords, and I'm. Um, you know, like every day I'd go around to his and I said, check out this chord and, you know, rack and Jimmy Webb songs. Oh, and anyway, any, anyhow, one day I went around to his and he says, you got to listen to this. And he's got his, you know, his dad's music center with his big headphones. And I put them on and he played me um, this one sort of forgettable Todd Rundgren track. And I just mm-hmm. went, I you know, I was breathless. And I was like, I've got to know, how you make this happen? Mm. Because the music to me, it was like a mixture of, you know, these references, Beach Boys, but Bacharach, very rich, melancholic chords. This, um, of his voice, which lots of people can't stand, but to me, immediately, who knows why, a voice just goes straight to your heart. Mm. And I, was, and there was also something very psychedelic about it. The sound was. Was sounded um, both like he was a clever musical arranger, but also he didn't really give a fuck mm-hmm. and because there was a tap dance solo in the middle of the song, yeah. and the synthesizers kind of squeebbling away. And to, to me, as a fourteen-year-old, it it was it was an epiphany. I was just from that moment on, I I just thought I I want to know how to do this. Mm.
1: is ready Look cuz on the skis this time I about better place in life and all you really want is attention
3: I'm very lucky that I discovered a passion so young and and um it really started me you know I became like obsessed with music learning how to play instruments and learning how to engineer and because it just went on and on and as you two know music just stretches on into the horizon and the more you know the more you discover Mm. there's more stuff to know and it's so it's it is universal it's the stars it's looking at the stars and you just it's a solace for many of us especially as you get older Yeah. And and people don't maybe necessarily don't want your music anymore. Um, It's nice to have gone through a spell when people, you know, I was working on records that sold. But I still go back to that Todd album that you just and and like I just just seeing the cover, I'm transported back. And, um, you know, like a boy from Suffolk, I'm a farmer's son. And I just had this psychedelic experience without touching anything stronger than a cup of tea with two sugars, you know
1: it was
2: Todd, has it all really, he does it, he does it all, and that that track it was useless begging, is that right?
3: Yeah, or you do, you know it, and so
2: so. so oh, oh, it's, I, a, it's a
3: wonderful uh, tune.
2: I'm a huge Todd fan. It's inter- Useless Begging, to me, was always a bit of a kind of... Um, I never really noticed it. But I don't know whether you realise this. When they put out a Todd compilation double CD, must be 20 years ago, that was the first track on the second CD. Ah. And it kind of suddenly gained a, a lot more prominence. And, I, and it was only then, after having had the album for many, many years, that I, that I really noticed it. The thing with Todd, though, there's so much compacted into a single album there's bits you'll take years and years to discover isn't there it's incredible
3: it's not for the faint-hearted um i wouldn't recommend todd Rundgren to anybody because i've tried (laughs) over the years and they just go yeah that's
2: i have yeah
3: you know because there's this mixture of the blue-eyed soul the bit that i love the baccarat kind of melancholic um melodies and, and and lyrics and then there's the heavy metal kid who comes out every now and then. And there's a prog, prog rock Todd. Then there's the um, kind of Gilbert and Sullivan Todd who does his stupid throwaway songs that are actually quite funny. Mm. And then there's instrumentals that just sort of appear from nowhere. I mean, it um, it is most of his albums, certainly back then, I think for many of us Todd fans, maybe um, his purple period when he just seemed to be able to Marry music and his maverick nature i think more people felt like uh um especially when he used to play everything um there was something very special about that when he, he's multi-instrumentalist as you know but not like a proficient guitar you know actually a really good guitarist but everything else was all a bit hit and miss mm. but in a beautiful way the same way that mccartney um would play all the instruments and suddenly it becomes something very special as opposed to hiring other people to uh, play this stuff uh, anyway so and that's coming back to my astral drive project if i may push it indeed gonna gonna,
2: gonna, go go okay. we're gonna push it too Faith and
3: Kind of felt like I was at the end of my career as, as a songwriter and producer for hire. Um, this, it came very, I was mucking about and I was, doing, I knew all the sort of Todd changes and I was playing this song and I, and then all of a sudden it sort of morphed into a track. I did the thing that Todd, the, the process where you, you put the chord progression down and then you do a bass line and put some drums on the guitar or whatever and a melody suddenly seeps up and, um and i found and i just found i enjoyed it so much and i thought well wow, this sounds kind of a bit like todd and then i was off and that that was you know that was the start of my astral drive adventure
2: what track was that phil
3: was wishing i could change the world i it's love a, that it's a quest quite a simple tune and um yeah that just seemed to you know how music is especially if you're songwriters says once you can find a title like a reason why your song is meant to be there then i got very lucky and then the next song i did for astral drive had the same same thing i just was able to transport myself back to the todd album that we were talking about and instead of playing like a you know like a seasoned studio guy i just went back to playing in a more innocent way um like a teenager i mm. was just trying to recapture people would say oh it's an homage to todd Rundgren," but it was actually an homage to me at being 16. Mm-hmm. that's what it was really about uh, you know summer a- of
0: 76 and all that
3: yeah it was um it was exactly the great summer of 76 mm. remembering that i was listening to todd pink floyd rory gallagher stevie wonder i'd you know some of those elements aren't as noticeable I bet Todd was just like a massive part of my musical education because I'm un- uneducated, you know. Um, I've learned about music theory. That will send anybody to sleep. But <laughs> I, I have, you know, now I arrange strings. And, um, yeah, just because uh, I, fi- I figured it out for myself, nobody could ever teach me anything.
0: No, I can but, really hear that, you know, Phil. And um, going back briefly to, to wishing I could change the world, I, I love this one. Uh, there's a real joy in you can tell that you're cherry picking some of your, to coin a phrase, pet sounds from, yes. from your youth. And I love that there's some lovely sort of staccato guitar choppy bits. Uh, and one of my favourite sounds on it is that wonderful kind of cheap, dirty, fuzz tone guitar thing that's in there that reminds me of, of what Brian Wilson was using during the smile sessions, particularly the fire track. Do you know the one he he won a grammy for it an instrumental that originally back in 66 had driven him crazy but it's got that same dirty growlingness which is utterly sixties and utterly wonderful
3: Yeah, I think there's something about, um, certainly with the Todd palette of sounds, I think because he he was working so fast and uh, would probably, you know, do the track, write the song because he's a genius, you know, write the song in 20 minutes and just go like, oh, yeah, there's mistakes all over this place. Mm, I'm afraid I I don't have, uh, it's a longer process for me, but there's still some of that feeling of like, uh, rather than doing a take, say on bass guitar, and going, oh, "Well, I nearly got it right. I- I'll perfect it on the next one." Go, yeah, that just leave That'll it, it <laughs> yeah and sort of, yeah, just go like. Unless you hear a massive clang, just carry on. Whilst you're in the, you know, people talk about that flow state now, uh, yes, which I'm lucky enough to have visited a few times, where where you just, you just realise like, just especially if you're working by yourself. Uh, keep rolling think what's what should i do next a glockenspiel okay i'll do a glockenspiel and don't you know as you, you do a glockenspiel track and there's two mistakes don't worry keep going what shall i do next i'll do attack piano okay there's three mistakes in that yeah but you can't really hear that just keep the only moment where you realize um if somebody else remixes your track then you're in trouble because of course <laughs> they go. i'd like to turn up the glockenspiel and <laughs> What key are you playing in? You can't tell if it's, that's, I think, part of the Todd Rundgren magic is that, in fact, I'll tell you, uh, Dave Gregory from XTC, who, who uh, you know, they had their big album um, produced by Todd. And he said, yeah. "What, well, Dave? Gre- Dave, who's a lovely, lovely guy and really interesting, you know, keyboard player, guitarist, and he said he was sitting there with a prophet or a synthesizer about to do this keyboard part on um, the track that Todd was producing for XTC. And he said this track, he sort of knew his parts, so was playing along and he's flicking through the presets going hmm yeah brassy is that okay okay that was a warmer sound he got to the end of the track and todd said okay that's good what's next
2: <laughs> <laughs> you've been recording all those presets changing.
1: brilliant
3: And, he, and and Dave said no 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 I'm just you know no he said this and he, and David admitted by the time the record was mixed it was like it was fine you know mm. that, there's something about um that kind of uh rather than look for perfection just go uh I think with my astral drive thing I just like to go like this, this feels nice especially with the drumming pool uh, I'm a very very um You know, we were talking about uh, the legend and Mm. like, just just find a little groove that you're capable of doing and you feel good about. Mm. Yeah. And uh, if you can't do it, if you can't actually make it feel um, how you want it to feel, go like, well, I'll do this. And then maybe if I overdub a tambourine, then I'll get the 16s. I can't play 16s on anything, you know, it's it's way (laughs) too complicated. But if you uh if you put a little guitar chop in the right place or you Create or, you know, the
0: sixteenths with a tambourine or whatever, yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah. Or, or or infer it with the bass line or something that you can actually yeah. play half decently. Yeah. Uh, then it will bubble up. Hey, maybe it maybe it's just nice just being, you know fours or so
2: yeah yeah i love to hear let's say non-drummers drumming on their own records there is something special about hearing mccartney drum i mean he's not that good a drummer but he brings it home and i guess stevie wonder well he's different because he's stevie wonder right he's phenomenal drummer (laughs) but uh yeah and todd i mean todd's no great shakes as a drummer but it's so important in those records that he's playing all of it sometimes sometimes he doesn't do that but when he wants to do that it's so important that every sound is produced by the creator and and that's Mm. you know what you do obviously on astral drive and it you know brings it home every time
0: i thoroughly enjoyed um visiting those two albums feel thoroughly enjoyable it, it, it's brought a real smile to my face but i'll tell you the the favorite piece of music of yours that i've, I've listened to this week and i, I confess I, I hadn't even heard of it before paul was was kind enough to send a link it might be related to astral drive but i'd like to hear more about it phil it's oh. a, a wonderful tune called clocks all stopped which you you recorded with with several of the Utopia Boys, didn't you? Honestly, it's an absolutely irresistible piece of music, and talking about you kind of throwing in that kind of spontaneous joy onto a record, I can taste that on on Earth. Oh, thanks.
1: (laughs)
3: yeah that's uh of course collaborating with todd's uh 40 year old side man i mean he's he, he's been todd's side man for 40 years he's not 40 years old he's 63 or 60. he
2: looks about 40 though doesn't he,
3: yeah. he <laughs> oh he's it makes you sick he I know. <laughs> my, uh, my missus just loves him you know he's slim he's from staten island he's still got his hair he's he's got great teeth he's a great singer and you know what? He's the kindest soul in the world. He really wow. is. Mm-hmm. And um, so we, we we actually made a... Uh, I produced and co wrote his solo album, which came out uh, in like a couple of months back. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this, the song you mentioned, Clocks Will Stop, was from a solo album from maybe six years ago, where we really... You're right. We really kind of... Um, we... Uh, in making that song and looking for sounds and... Um, we really did tap into a kind of thing that the Todd and Utopia fans miss, perhaps from Todd's, um, you know, uh, I love Todd's, even in his nuttiest, most recent recordings, there's always something to enjoy about it. (laughs) But God knows, going back to what Paul was saying, I miss him playing instruments more um, because there's lots of programming. It's the same thing. He's still manipulating sound and writing great, maybe not writing every now and then a great song comes along, but with um, clocks all stopped, of course, Todd is on there singing and playing guitar. So in this room I'm in now, I had the joy of, um, as we were producing the track, you know, this is Chasms in Staten Island, Todd's wherever he is, and um, sent him the parts and then... then, um, he I suggested a background part, vocal part, to Todd Rundgren. Like, what hey. American <laughs> shit am I? Yeah. <laughs> and it, it was just a two-part ooh thing. And it came back with one note changed. And you're like, oh, you're so fucking cool. <laughs> <laughs> because it was just one of those musical things where you go like, oh, I didn't spot that. And you spot it in a second. Um, huh. But he also had played a, 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 a guitar theme kind of with this glassy spiny um sound Mm -hmm. a bit like the sound he had around the faithful um album yeah like a like a mustang really really bright super compressed and i had to i i wasn't speaking to him directly but i said kaz can you ask him to resend it with less delays on it because it was so (laughs) like covered with um you know eighths and sixteenths of delays So Clocks All Stopped, I think we did a great job with lyrics and and somehow uh, somehow fluked a a great song using those same changes, kind of brill-building changes, I call those. (laughs) Very, very, you know, minor sevenths, major sevenths. Yes, yes. People often go, oh, they either say, oh, that sounds like Todd, or they say it sounds like the New Radicals.
0: I confess that that's in my notes there. But yeah. that's not a bad thing, because that's one of the most exhilarating pop records of the last 20, 20 years, in my view. Um, and, and, totally and, agree. Uh, yeah, yeah, a lot of your Astral Drive stuff has that kind of energy, doesn't uh. it?
1: Wake up kids, we got the dreamers disease.
2: got the fourth in the bass right or the the dominant seventh in the bass the todd chords that we all love but so no. few people actually deploy you know they never yeah. they never get out there
3: do they no the 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 slash chord the yeah yes. the slash chord yeah yeah um i don't you know going back to when i uh discovered todd with my friend mike you know when we're 14 you know we come show each other chord progressions and um you know, we'd have songbooks, and they would be full of. You know, you can't get through a Burt Bacharach song. There's no. You play it with majors and minors. There's there's just like the heartbeat goes out the music. Yeah. Um. And when you add for for the for people who who are, are non musicians, most chords and most songs, say like a Neil Diamond song, would generally be based on three note chords. Yeah. Primary colors. And then when you get into Burt Bacharach or Carol King or certainly Todd or New Radicals, there's usually four notes in the chord or all or, or the distribution of the three notes or wherever the bass note is sticking out that creates this um, emotional thing. And it's often, it often evokes sadness or melancholy. I don't know why that is. I think... Um, there was a cat called Debussy, and another one. You know, you, you know those guys. I yeah. think um, I think they uh, deployed that kind of very rich harmony. And for some reason, uh, maybe like y- you two, uh when I hear those chords, I just go, I get transported to yeah. uh, in,
2: into, in, into the universe. Yeah, it changes the centre of gravity of the sound, doesn't it? But the thing that the thing that interests me is. Why is it used so little, particularly in today's music? Because it's actually dead easy to do. You know, you can even do it by accident. If you're a sort of beginner piano player, you can discover these kind of shapes. But you just do not hear it at all in, I think, in mod- and perhaps you can answer that question. Why is it not there?
3: Well, I think you'd be surprised maybe um, that it is hiding in some very cool records like... Um, i'm gonna say like sometimes on Kanye west productions okay. there's some real richness that that taps into that don't be so baby don't worry about it My first boss. This connects us with Mr. Grant Goldman. Um, When I was 18, I started working for Mickey Most, the Mm. music impresario, the kind of Simon Cowell of his day, and um, who tended to, you know, he had uh, the the songs. He had golden ears, and he could pick. He really could just pick a hit. It was just like so obvious to him, not obvious to anybody else. But, um, you know, those songs were often very simple triads. You know, the chords would be major, minor. There, w- there would be not be a lot of polyphony or po- not a lot of polychordal, this sort of extra note action. And I mm-hmm. remember being on one session, on a racy <coughs> session. Mm-hmm. There, was a, there was a kind of, um, there were great guys. I had a couple of number ones in about 1978, you know, a pop band. Doing Chin and Chapman songs, they, they were Mickey's go-to writers, and um, "What Some Girls" was one of their big hits. Yeah. Anyway, I remember like uh, the guitarist was actually a Todd fan, oh, so, yeah, was a Todd fan, and I remember him trying to sneak in on one of these songs like an extra note in the chord, and Mickey, who was a, had been a singer, immediately just said, "That's out of tune," <laughs> <laughs> and he was right because it didn't you know, in terms of the melody and supporting mm. the melody, it was, you know, the moment you put in a major seventh, it rubs every. it rubs, that's that's why mm. we like it, that's why people don't like it. Mm. I think there's a certain, um, maybe on radio, there's a reason why um, too much of that density turns people off, you know, Steely Dan records are full of those those rich cluster chords, and although they had pop hits you know that they, they, they were never going to be like lana ritchie or or let say prince i mean prince could sneak one in
1: yeah.
3: anyway anyway i think it's difficult for for the regular person's ear to um somehow it might obscure a pop song by having that that element to it
1: yeah.
0: I'm with you there. There are exceptions. Um, I'm thinking one that kind of illustrates what what both of you are saying, really. You remember Saturday Night by Wigfield? I do. Probably, you know, a lot of people, a lot of listeners will probably be screaming uh, to the hills at this point. I think it's really underrated. And for me, it's a great illustration of of how to use slash chords in a really minimal way. The bass line, is creating a a slash chord, but the chords above it are incredibly simple. Sometimes two notes, maybe three, but generally the chords are kind of hinted at. Yeah, it it works great on the radio because it has that purity, but there's the richness of of the unexpected bass notes. So it can happen, Paul, but I'm I'm with you. It it doesn't seem to be nearly as common as the good old days. Can can we move forward? Um, You mentioned, Coming on to Graham Goldman there, and if yes. I may, maybe as a cheesy link between the the massive influence that Todd Rundgren has clearly had on you, Todd Rundgren was kind of like a one-man 10cc, wasn't he? He was the talented multi instrumentalist, uh, and, and when he when he couldn't play an instrument, he'd just have a go and it would sound great. An effective singer, a great songwriter, and a talented producer, and I presume engineer as well. Um, yeah. <laughs> many of the characteristics that make Ten CC such a uni- uh, such a unique outfit, would you would you agree with my kind of um, summation there, Phil? I I,
3: I think uh, knowing Graham, that I sense Ten um, CC maybe might have been easier to get along with. Than, uh, <laughs> I, I get the sense that Mister Rangren is is not uh, the most patient of people, but um, I suppose the seventies maybe artists allow it, being allowed to, um, i not going to say indulge themselves, but being able to create. And then, of course, the, Todd, I would imagine, would have the same thing. Maybe 10CC, because of Graham's natural poppiness, they would have been more than well aware that if you don't have a hit on the album, there may not be another album. So you better have a hit. I think no matter how much um you know how great they are as artists the the sense of the reality the music business is it reaches as far as strawberry north you know that mm-hmm. uh yeah uh you know and and obviously they were originally signed to jonathan king who really knew what a pop record what a pop hit was yeah uh, and they'd done lots of work as um you know do it, doing that that sort of session stuff yeah I, I i would have loved to send send these four very um different singers bringing different talents but but again you know not afraid to um to uh, mess around with not mess around but explore harmony in the sense not just meaning harmony vocals but strange chords and unusual chord progressions which you know i've written a few songs with graham and uh, you can't get two bars without graham going what about if we instead of going where you expect it to go <laughs> you know that's what that's very much part of his personality as a writer is to um keep, even if you're trying to write for you know like uh, write for the music business machine you're writing for somebody's voice he's always looking for a, a um another an color op- another mm-hmm. another color a different a different avenue um f- far more so than me you know um, okay.
1: uh, i've waited all my life for you and your sunshine here in-
2: We'll work backwards to, to wax if we may, but I mean you were kind enough, Phil, to send us some, some great songs that I'd never heard. Oh yeah, great stuff. writing collaborations with Graham and they might be illustrative of of, of how he writes and, and how you bounce off that perhaps. I really liked Fix My Heart. Yeah, that was my uh, favourite too. What did it ever get released? Can you tell us about that one?
3: Uh, yeah, we wrote the song with uh, uh, Lucy Silvers, uh, who now lives in Nashville, has a career in Nashville uh, as a, as an artist. She did have a hit the, in the uh, late 90s, you know, playlisted on Radio 2. She's got just, like, a gorgeous voice. And,
0: and is, she, is she the girl singing on the demo?
3: Yeah. We wrote. Oh, yeah. Great we wrote vocal. The, yeah, we wrote the song with, with with Lucy, and so that would all have been done in a day, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's oh. one of those songs um where when you're you know I was gonna say jobbing songwriter, but that's sort of what we were then. Mm. And um but you know, it it feels it's a it's got a lot of sort of real building um yeah,
0: totally. Got it. Um, yeah. Especially right. in the especially in the verses with those lovely, sort of yeah, quite but... strange descending chords. They remind me kind that of That would a, be Graham. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but um, but I, I I sense a kind of an instrumental palette from you. I loved it. It reminded me of summertime Gershwin tune uh, oh, nice. and and Bacharach mm-hmm. as well. Uh, I, I just I just love the way it it, it descends in uh, it, it's going down a staircase but kind of sometimes it's going two steps at a time, what sometimes one step at a time. Very unusual.
5: I'm so good at lying to myself like it doesn't matter. But what
3: Thank you. Um, Let's uh, pass this message on to Lucy and maybe she'll release it. Um, Hmm. I think her output is much more kind of Nashville centric now. yes i did actually uh i'd messaged graham the other day and uh he said uh, and i said oh you know first of all i said i'm going to talk to these two nutcases sean and paul are they <laughs> like kosher and he was like yeah 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 that's that you know that, They're I'll, allow, all right. I'll allow it this time <laughs> uh, and i said i'm going to share these songs with them and he was like yeah that's fine so so um in fact um He's about to go on tour. Because I said, why don't we get together for a coffee? Because he literally lives half a mile up the road. Oh, uh, brilliant. Yeah. And, and um, he said he's about to hit the road on Thursday, I think. So, uh-huh. so he, he he declined. But that was his excuse. Maybe he didn't <laughs> want to see me. But which, <laughs> no, he's, he's a lovely guy. Yeah. So, in fact, we were saying, like, with reference to that song and, and maybe some of the others, the difference, and you as songwriters will appreciate this, the difference between a song flying and plummeting is so... You you hear a song, you, you've you written perhaps some of those songs, maybe seven years old, ten years old, and you hear it and you go like, yeah, that bit's wrong. Mm. You, you immediately know there's a section where your, your attention wanders or the lyric hasn't quite nailed it or... Or sometimes very, very in large letters, you've just, you just haven't come up with a, a decent lyric or a song title. You know, there's something fundamentally um, unwell about the song, you know. Um, but, and sometimes it's just small things that, uh, that uh, a good producer like a, a Mickey Most would, would go, would just, let's just miss that bit out or mm. would immediately, his sense uh, uh, would re- recognise which bits were broken. Of course, Mickey Mouse had a big effect on Graham. He, he um, I guess, Hermits. Hermits would have would would have done one or two of. Uh...
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, Hermans Hermits. Um, so They, they recorded were, several of Graham's, were, didn't they? They were pro- they were produced by Mickey Mouse, weren't they? He produced all their songs, and um, and Harvey, of course, managed Hermans Hermits, so there was a direct connection there and um and we've heard stories from harvey lisberg that um people like kevin godley and lol cream in the very early days would have would sing their songs down the phone to mickey most and after 30 seconds he'd say no don't want that one <laughs> <laughs> and that was the way f- that was the way songs were auditioned and it's incredible to think that uh, but the guy obviously had fantastic ears and and mickey most was it, you mentioned briefly he was a massive pop star in like South Africa, wasn't he? Before he even became a producer.
1: Is that right? Well I got a girl named Bonnie Moroni. Well she's got a finger like a stick of macaroni. Mm, I love her and she loves me. Who I happy now we can't be make love underneath that.
3: Yes, yeah. he was, because, because Mickey was, cl- I think, very clever because he was in South Africa because his girlfriend was there, and he okay. realized none of the rock and roll records, the originals, had been released in South Africa. Oh, this right. Is be- this is how you become an impresario. Yeah. So so, so he starts covering, I, I I, don't know for a fact, but Bebop, Palula or Great Balls of Fire, no one mm. in South Africa has ever heard these songs before, and I would imagine would go, like most people do when they hear those records, they go, they're bonkers. I (laughs) want to see. So the producer in him, perhaps he was a producer before he even realized he was a producer. You know, he was putting together, I can sing, I need a good song. I need some good musicians in a studio. um, And then became the most successful kind of independent record producer back mm-hmm. in England yeah. and would uh, would own the masters outrageous that's mm-hmm. okay. you know just great just great business you know would often own the song wow. would become become the publisher and um, yeah. so like uh, way before Simon Cowell he was looking around and uh, and would go to the bill building every two weeks you know to hear what songs everybody had high house silver lining yes I'll take that one you know it you just uh, <laughs> this career is made by this person who's just who, who's uh got a sixth sense a sixth sense but is also just thinking business mm. he's yeah. he's i uh, you know probably love music but uh you know in my experience of working with him you know it was all very the sessions would be very sh- short would be finished by six o'clock in the evening it was very very sober you know um and, um, and uh, just trying to make a hit record or trying to make two hits on one album the rest of the album would be recorded in four or five days could not give a shit <laughs> could, not, could
2: not care, right
3: <laughs> unless the only thing he cared about of course was as long as the writers were signed to Rack Publishing <laughs> right, and, yeah and then, because it, it was uh, I d- yeah, sorry, I've wandered off what no, it's fine, with- it's,
0: it's fine. Yeah. we love all that we love all that shit it's like the Phil Spector school of albums, isn't it? it's like two hits and the rest is filler you can make it you can make it instrumentals chaps if you want to yeah amazing
2: we're we're wondering but let's can we go back to um astral drive (music) now summer of 76 tell you about my my own story with that record i heard it i thought this is fantastic that's first thing i thought I didn't know it was anything to do with you. I didn't. I imagined in my head it was like a sort of um, a late twenty, early thirty-something guy imagining um, that he'd lost his youth when he hadn't, if you know what I mean. And it, it made me, it made me a bit pissed off because I was thinking, hey, here comes another young guy, you know, re- reflect, self-reflecting on 1976 when he never even knew it. <laughs> um, although I loved the record, and then when I found out. I mean, I hope you don't mind me saying, when I found out the guy who wrote it was even older than I am,
4: <laughs> <laughs> just,
2: it really, it just, I thought it was fantastic, it is a terrific record, yeah. and um, I love it, and I want to ask about the video, which I think is brilliant as well, where did, where did the video get done?
3: Yeah, uh, the video. Well, thanks very much for loving that record. I love that record too. I don't, it's one of those ones I don't know where it came from. Yeah, uh, right. I wish I knew how to do it again, but mm-hmm. um, that's that's the way it goes. The video, uh, the director, he's, he's from, uh, I think he's from Newcastle. So his name is Ollie Rylands. Mm-hmm. And we'd been speaking maybe a year or two before that um, about, I'd said, I got this project. I knew him through a mutual artist. And and I'd liked what I've seen. Um, Anyway, it came time to do the video. And unfortunately, like on the weekend, he had everything scripted. His dad fell ill, you know, like was Mm. in hospital. And he said, I'm really sorry. And um, so in that sense, uh, it was kind of like a tragedy. And then a few months later, Luckily enough, it hadn't made any difference to the timing of my record because nobody was nobody was knew about Astral Drive. Nobody was going like, "Where's that bloody Astral Drive video?" (laughs) So so I think Ollie went out of his way as as in some kind of uh, artistic compensation to to really put his everything into it, and uh, he got paid peanuts for for making um, you know, and he he, you know did a bunch of edits and. Mm. You know all the little things ideas i had about including a todd record visually and, hmm. and you know just a couple of little nods um which i thought would make if if any todd fans saw the video they'd go oh hang on a second this you know there's although it doesn't act there's some like elements in 1976 like a sports car and and, and the kind of clothes, um, that everybody and the heat of '76 as well. It was bloody
0: hot, wasn't it, that summer?
3: Well, that was the thing that we all experienced. That it was just the best summer ever, yeah. Of course, when you're 16, and and uh, well, the song is my little autobiography, you know, it is about like it was just amazing discovering chords, discovering you know, girls, discovering sex, and then um. And then by the second verses, I'm already like in London, you know, working, having in the to go smoke. Yeah, in the smoke. Yeah. And, uh, say goodbye to my paradise, you know, all the dreams and ideals I had uh, of when I was 16, you know, in that amazing summer where, you know, we, I don't know about you. I was riding around on a bike without shoes on. And uh, absolutely staying out, staying out without a mobile phone and come back for your tea yeah yeah it was it was just magic it was just a magical time it um, really
0: it really was and there's a lovely glockenspiel uh, into the bargain as well beautifully yeah. played uh, yeah, <laughs> no mistakes ooh,
1: ooh, take me back to the summer of 76 yeah
0: I think yeah, th- there's some lovely stuff on, on 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 these albums, Phil, and I've got a, a, a really geeky question here for you. There was one that tied my head in knots yesterday. No one escapes, and i I couldn't oh, yeah. That's es- I couldn't, favorite anyone. I couldn't escape that fucking time signature. Is it seventeen eight Wow, on the intro no th- there's all sorts ow, of crazy ow, wait, shit going on. The middle know, bit, I, you mean? No, you've got a little. You've got a little sort of four-bar intro, and yeah, then you've yeah, got an, like a thirty-second instrumental. And I yes. was, you know, just I was just sort of banging my knee along with it, and thought, "No, hang on, there's something, there's something yeah, really weird it, coming here."
3: I think uh, I and I for a moment I thought well, it's just four four, but I thinking back, it starts with a guitar phrase, yes, which is just copy and pasted. And I think the guitar phrase starts isn't on the one. Yeah. So you are the moment it starts, you're going da 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 da. da, da. It, it's actually going like one da da, da 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 da. So but you don't hear one, you just hear the sixteenth or whatever the eighth note where it starts. Yeah. So so uh, yeah, and I edited it like that, and I and I did think, well, that is a bit confusing, but yes, let's carry on.
0: Oh, I loved it, and I must have listened to it about eight times. But, oh, thank see, you. The, the, This is the world that that uh, Paul and I inhabit, you see. Phil. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Me too. But one thing that that really struck me listening to, particularly Astral Drive, but some of your other stuff as well, is that there's a very enticing mixture of your 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 favourite. You, from your favourite palette of 60s sounds. You know, you've got the lovely Farfisa organs on Summer of 76, for example, and you've got a more kind of maybe 70s soulful vibe with, uh, with Astral Drive itself, um, which kind of reminded me of, of a band I love, Young Gun Silver Fox, who have got the sort of West Coast 70s absolutely pinned. It struck me, Phil, that, that where I think your work is quite unusual and certainly appeals to people like me is that you're mixing those, those 60s and 70s sounds that are deliberately there, but you're couching them in a very kind of contemporary production. And I'm not ch- talking about you just throwing in a little bit of random auto-tune as you do on, on Stargazing, which is great, with all those harmonies. But it reminds me of, of the work of people like Mark Ronson, you know okay. um who are yes retro but very very contemporary and modern is that yeah. a, is that an approach that you've taken deliberately
3: uh i i guess not um i i like you i love those retro sounds i i i who knows why it just sort of if you can pick the right uh the right uh for instance if you do a kind of a motowny drum sound um there's something about it that sometimes uh, just makes a song feel cooler. Mm. Um, and I also, with the bass playing, sometimes I try and get into a Motowny y vibe. Um, and I know how to, I know how to, I can't play like those guys, but I know how to manipulate the sound to make it seem as though it, it is like that.
0: Yeah, but you, don't, no, we, but you don't quite have the Jameson finger then. Who does? Oh.
3: Yeah, who do, who does? And yeah, the, the guy is just beyond everybody else. He, he doing everything that you shouldn't do, <laughs> and yet you can mix. Obviously, on those records, the bass was mixed so loud, and yet mm. it doesn't get in the way of the song. What the hell is that about? <laughs> yeah, <I'm> like <laughs> that's quantum physics. Yeah. and the
0: tam- yeah. and the tambourines eight times too loud. Yeah, yeah, and yet, and it, yet it's it, fantastic.
3: It, tambourine, bass guitar bits of a song in the background (laughs) obviously it was mixed as an engineer you realize it was mixed for am radio and they wanted to make sure they could get the bass and that particular crunchy like the rhythm across and i guess the best way to do that was to crank the brilliant brilliant bass player and the the brilliant tambourine player and then you've got a room full of um the you know like the arrange what was the guys that was a Paul Riser the arrange the arranger you Not know sure. Can't remember. strings and yeah like just brilliant arrangements on the tears of a clown and yeah. then guess what you might even have Marvin Gaye singing I mean
0: <laughs> or playing piano how,
3: you know oh, it's madness you holding writing you a song how can you lose with yeah. with a room full of that you know that sort of talent. um and and to somehow get them, I guess that's Barry Gordy's genius was. Uh, but yes, I think uh, going back to your question, yeah, occasionally quoting sounds maybe from Todd Records um, or retro seventies records uh, that I naturally gravitate towards those because it seems like fun. Like, um, what's wrong with a kind of a Moog synthesizer being doubled with a, a you know, an, an over fuzzy electric guitar uh, i think you i go like yeah that's that's it just gets me excited definitely and, yeah. and as i say because i'm not educated musically you know I, but i understand now i understand you know like things like um counter melody and arranging and mm-hmm. but it's like in years and years and years but uh, so i really enjoy that part of making because i'm not a great singer I think I'm heartfelt. I give I give it everything I can, but I don't have a great tone. So all the other elements, just like therapy. Um, all the other elements <laughs> have to kind of like make up for the fact, you know, he's written a good song, he's got some good lyrics, he's not a great singer. Okay, so make sure the arrangement around it is compelling. Um, and thank one of the things I have learned to do through the years is is to to kind of manipulate sounds to try and give that that feeling of um of um making you want to carry on listening to what the singer's talking about i wish i had andrew gold's voice (laughs) you know um so 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 true so so do we speaking of which i've got something to play you
0: here phil i'm not sure if if you've ever heard this we'd never heard it until about a year ago Uh, the aforementioned dave jarvis sent us a bunch of tapes um, that had been sitting in in graham lock lockup for ages you were talking about being in the room with with extraordinarily talented people here's something for you uh, in fact a couple of bits and pieces this is a really short demo from wax's oh, yeah. common knowledge uh era it sounds to me just graham and andrew in a room with a guitar and possibly a drum machine and then i want to play you a really brief basic recording as well and kickstart a conversation about your time with wax i would love to i'm primed (laughs) fantastic right so here we go um a demo Let me just give you a little burst of this as well oh by the way this is from a tape called finished structures and i was going to wanted to ask you what you think that yeah. meant one, two, one, three, okay and very briefly
2: a flutter, flutter, I flutter, you. I
0: flutter. A flutter? <laughs> come. Come it out Were you in the room with them at that point, do you think, Phil?
3: No, that sounds as though uh, th- that sounds like a long way before you know, uh, even the A and R would have heard those tunes. I I wouldn't have heard their songs until you know it would have been presented to me by the A and R person. Um, you know, would I be interested in working with the band? <laughs> hear, hear, hear the full song, and then by then the demos would be um, that maybe Systematic might have been that raw, but a little bit cleaner. I think that it, that sounds like it's a like a cassette player in the room. Yes next to the speakers as opposed to a, like direct
2: fee from, from yes it's definitely it,
0: I think it's in Andrew's home studio actually possibly even in Graham's um, yeah. and I was going
2: to ask you sorry to jump into I'm going to ask you how you uh, we talked to Graham and he said that uh, was it Peter Robinson put you together with with wax and and another question if I may I mean you were hot at the time you know you were working with some of the the new younger acts and having a great deal of success right so <laughs> my question is um did you have any qualms about working with andrew gold and graham Goldman, who we all know they're fantastic but they were they'd been a bit colder you know tennessee had finished andrew gold hadn't had any hits i wondered whether you had any any thoughts about it at the time
3: um uh- as I remember, um, just going back to those demos, I did spend a couple of days in Wilmslow g- in Graham's. Uh, he didn't. Actually, I don't think He actually had a studio, had a grand piano. A couple of days with. Later on in the album session, with, okay. writing, writing with those guys, I was just before I forgot. Um, and I actually bought Graham's piano, ra- or oh. rather or ha- rather, Harvey sold me Graham's piano. Oh yeah,
2: there you go.
3: And uh, which is now in my. It's still
2: there, uh, is it? Oh great! So it's well, um, that was. That was the house in Mottram St. Andrew, right, that uh, Graham... I can't, can't remember
3: uh, the... um But, uh yeah, I've got the... the 10- You've got the piano. I've got the 10cc touring piano. Wow. Um And I've had that for, you know, I guess since 86, 85, whenever I worked with them. I think Graham was moving and... and right, um, right. They said, do you want to buy a grand piano? And I was like, yeah, I'm interested. And Harvey... Um, I don't know Harvey that well, but that's when I sort of knew him and he could see the light in my eyes and he just went oh. like made a deal. Yeah. It, was, it was done in a minute. Mm. And I was, I was happy and I think Graham was happy. And I've still got the piano, lovely piano. I'm still oh. waiting to see if I find any of the 10cc drugs, you know, hidden. And, you know. <laughs> but, um, I think Kevin Lowell smoked all of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But um, so going back to um, Peter Robinson, I don't know. I must have heard the songs and thought they sound like hit songs. Okay. And um, I would have been, um, you know, I'd learned from Mickey uh, just to be led more or less by the songs, you know, Uh, and it would frustrate uh, record companies around that time. I'd be offered uh, like to work with a new artist and I'd hear the song and I'd go, great. And we'd make the record, and it would do quite well. And they go, here's the second single. And i go, like, no, not to my ears. And I would just turn them down because Mickey had said, you know, like, trust your instinct about the song. And then he said that to me. I watched him work mm-hmm. and saw, like we, you, you were mentioning earlier, he would listen to a song demo up in his office, and he wouldn't even wait for the chorus because he just didn't like what was happening. Why mm. even bother for the chorus to come in to help the, you know, maybe you can fix the song or whatever, but he just didn't like the vibe. Mm. And trust, I guess he trusted that instinct and it served him well for 20, 30 years. Mm. So uh, with Wax, I don't, I loved, you know, I'd love the 10 CC singles. I'd love the Andrew Gold singles. You know, when I was work, had summer jobs, In the summer of 76, I'm sure the radio was on, would never let us slip away. One moment, and then I'm not in love the next. Um, So I I had a lot of respect for them. Uh, Obviously, there was the um, very early on in um, when we were making Systematic, I think, uh, you know, we probably would have gone in to cut maybe that, Shadows of Love, maybe like a test. Let's do two or three songs and just see and and i um i was such an arrogant little shit i really was <laughs> you know because i was quite i was um you know i'm actually quite a an introvert and then you, you know like many people have this thing where you realize in order to get through the business that you're in you have to become somebody else you don't have to become somebody else but this ego <laughs> appears for you to be able to you want you want to make a great record so you become this person that that uh, uh and, in, and when i produce things i think i'm not so bad now but i really used to have to control what was going on mm-hmm. and and uh, and andrew you know graham is very laid back and and um whereas andrew was sort of maybe a bit more like me a bit overexcited he was like i was trying to work and he's um like fiddling around with the delays and starting to get close to the desk and I'm the engineer and the producer. And so uh, very early on in those sessions, I was like, okay, like everybody out, Andrew and Graham sit down. And I can't believe I did this. You know, these (laughs) two great songwriters and I'm sort of giving the Phil Thornally lecture in studio etiquette. I, I think, on the nice side, I was just trying to express, can you just let me? I was just trying to say, can you let me do my thing? And y- you do your thing, but I said it in the most ugly and probably offensive way possible. <laughs> um, you know, because they were the wrong age for pop music, and here am I saying that at the age of 61, making pop yeah. music. But you know, they were probably like thirty-three or thirty-four or something like this. You yeah, know?
0: leave the knobs uh, alone, you old twats. <laughs>
3: <laughs> that, that was that was pretty much it. <laughs> yeah. I, di- I didn't know you recorded that. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> It was really not some, it was more Andrew, Andrew's excit, excitability. Hmm. Uh, I look back now and go, I regret that I used whatever words I used, but you know what? From that moment on the working relationship kind of settled, you know, so I could, I could, um, so they let me do my thing. And then I was able to enjoy their bounteous talents, you know, that just the pair of them, uh, I think in particular, I've got to say, um, you know, Andrew's voice, I just always, oh, and his ability to like pluck California just from the air of St. John's Wood, yeah, was was pretty special. There's one distinct memory of his talent that I recall. We There was a stairwell outside the studio. So, you know, in a kind of a retro way, we put Andrew out there with headphones. There's people from the record company walking up and down the stairs whilst he's singing mm-hmm. and just saying just kind of freeform some um like no like the, sort of like the beach boys on uh, the middle section of this song or the second verse and he wouldn't even listen yeah just like sing one part then so there's this natural echo with mm-hmm. his beautiful voice and then do take to second take without hearing the first one the third take without hearing either of them and then put them all in and it's like good god, god this guy just like he's he's the musical tap there are certain people you come across you just go um uh, and some of them like Greg Alexander from New Radicals Darren Hayes from Savage Garden these you just go you just turn the tap and music comes out of them and, and then you go thank you and you turn it off <laughs> and and suddenly your bath is full of like all these gorgeous you know, things uh, yeah yeah That's one thing I particularly remember about Andrew's improvisational talents and his natural, you know, Graham himself is also naturally, you know, with the guitar, but he's more guitar centric, obviously more bass wise, but I guess Andrew had a wider scope with um, perhaps um, being a keyboard player too. And there was something very nice. I always remember very fondly the um, solo section of Right Between the Eyes. When I hear that, I feel very proud that I hear Graham and Andrew being beautifully musical. You know, apart from the song being a pop song, and there's there's an explosion on the chorus and brass stabs. And then it gets to this guitar solo in the middle. And I, because uh, I listened to it, I did my homework. I thought I'm going to talk to Sean and Paul. I don't want <laughs> to. Well done. And um, and then there's this, there's this, you know, like a busy guitar solo, and then there's this kind of. Um, ooh, ooh,
1: wee, ooh, ooh. This oh thing yeah,
3: yeah. Doubled with Andrew's voice, and I. And it's like it sort of doesn't make any sense. It's why has it gone from guitar to this? And it was just because the musical tap, you know, you do do some stuff, guys, and you know, between the pair of them, you just know you're going to end up with if you mix it quite well that that um, it is going to sound musical. They yeah. can't help it. You yeah. can't lose.
2: that's you're right i think i think you you're being a bit uh modest in a way because um i don't know whether you were familiar with their previous um as yet unreleased work together as common knowledge when they were called common knowledge do you know that record
3: it it was common knowledge that they were common knowledge but i I hadn't heard the record so um... okay
2: well that record which eventually came out after the wax albums is really really good it's full of great songs but it doesn't it it doesn't cohere into a single statement and it wouldn't have been a hit at the time whereas i think magnetic heaven and you you could argue whether the songs are better on magnetic heaven or common knowledge it it's a sound and that must have been at least 33 percent down to you um it sounded it was like a bullseye, you know, particularly right between the eyes. It's just a bullseye. And I cannot, cannot believe that it wasn't a hit in the UK.
3: Yeah, well, uh, we comfort ourselves by knowing it was number one in Spain. Yes, and exactly. Uh, I think it got to about, like, 30-something in America, which, of course, that's the first time I'd had a tickle in America of a of, uh, hit. Right. It. But right. Um, I think, uh, like, around that time... Uh, you know, using Lin drums, not a lot of programming, you know, the <laughs> synthesizers weren't, weren't, were being played. If it was a, a bass synthesizer, it would have been played by Andrew. Um, but the drum machine was the drummer, but yeah. their sampling had just come in. There was this new sampler. Um, so, and the drums were my kind of thing and I would use my dry, drum samples. So um we were looking uh, at the cover of the Thompson Twins Into the Gap earlier, where I had this one snare sample, this one um, from one session I'd done where, where the drummer, I'd sampled his, him hitting the snare 10 times, really good sounding snare, and uh, then carried on using one of those hits on the Thompson Twins. So every time you, uh, for people that are unaware of how sampling what works, you, you just get, and sometimes in drum machines, the actual sounds were a bit rubbish. So the mm-hmm. snare drum might be a bit, um, like not be usable. I mean, Prince obviously made that a thing, but, um, I would replace the sounds from the drum machine with my own sound. So I would, uh, yeah, it's getting very technical anyway. So no, the, okay, I, sure. the snare drum that's on, for instance, uh, right between the eyes would be the same snare drum that's on Into the Gap, the oh, same no. snare drum that was on the Duran Duran. Is there something I should know? Because it it had a certain energy to it. And so yeah. that was a secret weapon that I would just carry around. Mary Claire, when I listened to that, I was like, yeah, that was probably the first thing I did when I mixed it. I was like, I'm going to replace the snare with... with ah. um. I have a picture.
2: Yeah, you mentioned Marie Claire, which you didn't produce but did mix. That was recorded at Strawberry North, we think. We're pretty sure it was, but it was it was right. So you you made that sound more like the rest of the tracks by replacing some of the elements, right? I
3: think that was just my, as a producer, that was my offset or as a mixer. Um, because around that time, because I'd learned from some great producers that, the key to getting your track to sound big Mm. was to get the element, maybe three elements, the kick drum, the snare drum, and the bass instrument. If you get those under control, if you get the right energy, and and this is why I would use that snare drum sample, no matter how the snare was originally conceived, it might have been a soft sound, but I just wanted to hear whack, whack. You know, um, so so if you get the elements of the kick drum the snare drum and the bass instrument in a really nice place then everything else can kind of if you can get those three things to be compelling everything else will you'll make your life a lot lot easier mm. um so with something like mary claire even though the original track would it have been chris nagel why is that a name that comes to mind? yeah quite it's possibly possible.
2: yeah strawberry engineer yeah he was working Isn't at amazing I don't I don't know where he that just goes. came back. OK, mm-hmm. yeah. because
3: I'm so used to looking at tape boxes and going who the engineer is either going like you like in that case, it was really well recorded Yes. Yeah. when you're a mixer, when a t- the tape is well recorded. It's so much fun because you're just making choices based on how how aggressive you want it to be like you rather than going. um, oh, uh, Geez, you know this guitar is all over the place. I'll stick a compressor on it,
4: mm-hmm.
3: or or this thing is noisy, so I'll have to gate it, or the, all these things that that the modern producers don't really know. Ha- didn't have to deal with all that stuff, mm-hmm. um, but that was just part and parcel of being a mic- a mixer. Um, but yeah, there was always something about Mary Claire that I was thought this is really cool. When I listened to it yesterday, I was sort of just. Dis- uh, the track sounds compelling, but uh Graham's vocal isn't loud enough, and you know some you listen you hear things and you go like, yeah, yeah, if I was doing it again. my boss Mickey most every t- he'd walk past the studio where we were in and he'd stick his head in whenever I was, no matter who I was producing and he'd always point to the voice to to his mouth and go and then point <coughs> upwards to say turn up the singer, turn up the singer." And of course, years later, when you're writing lyrics and you understand the mechanics of songs, you know, it becomes, it's not always the answer, but somebody has taken the trouble to write some lyrics to tell you how they feel and why it is special. Mm. And yet you can't hear it because the snare drum's so loud, you know. (laughs) Um, So I'm sure he probably was walking past when we were mixing Mary Claire, sticking his head around the corner
2: and going, you, d- you didn't see him. You must have been lo- you must have been looking the other way, so you missed him. That's right. You never gave me the chance
1: To be more than a victim of circumstance Now I find myself lying for you And I'll do anything that you want me to
0: Phil, I was going to ask you, actually, you've sort of preempted a a question that I was dying to ask you. In terms of listening back to those records in hindsight, and don't take this the wrong way, but those wax records to me at the time sounded fantastic and, and compelling. You chose exactly the right words. Do you now, as a producer who, who made so many records in the late 80s, um, at, at a time when generally pop production was of its time, do you feel that they sound dated now? And do you wish in some way, you could go back and record more acoustically.
3: I, um, I agree. I listened to, when I listened to them yesterday, there's only a few. Uh, I didn't find Magne- Mag- Magnetic Heaven on Apple Apple Music. I found a Greatest Hits.
2: Yeah, it's not on there, that's right. Yeah. And I
3: had four, four of the songs. And um, right between the eyes, I thought, that's a good record, well done. You know, that seems to all add up. But then I listened to Systematic and I, and I was like, you know, it was Aping Prince or, or Pointer Sisters or that 80s sound of Busy with a brass synth. And that that, that one sounded a bit crap. You know, like just it actually didn't sound like one of my mixes. It mm. was, I'm sure it was, but I was sort of... Since it was a pretty good song, um, yeah, I could have done better. One thing I did think, which I would do now which I've learned through, you know, the first thing I wanted to be was a songwriter when I was 13. Mm. So, and then it took me years for my songs to get good enough to get considered. But when I listen to those songs, if I had been a smarter producer, I would have edited the songs tighter. I think often, you know, they just take too long to get to the, the the chorus is always like worth getting to, Mm. but I think it takes too long to get there. I think that, if we were to re- re-record them acoustically, as you say, yeah, that would have, um, I'm, not, I'm not sure, they're just of their time, you know, it's that type of songwriting, it's very in-your-face pop and that kind of went with those synthy brass sounds and um, kind of um, very obvious drum machine, that's just what the, the sound in the middle of the 80s was like, yeah. you didn't see, a, you know, like in the 90s, it's like, what are you doing? You know, somebody's setting up a drum kit. <laughs> what the hell's that? <laughs> because, and, and apart from the fact, of course, I I that's how I got my first production gigs because I knew how to program a drum machine. <laughs> He's a genius. He's a genius, this kid. <laughs> he read two pages of the manual. Yeah. Uh, um, But I'm not kidding. You know, it was just like that. that guy. I think his name is Phil Thornaby. Something. Anyway, he knows how to produce and he knows how to program a drum machine. Brilliant. I think if they're mixed, like I think right between the eyes is a good mix mm. and has the right elements. A lot of times, like with that one, you might think it's a electric piano, but it's actually Graham playing on uh, um, a Strat that's like super compressed and all the top end rolled off and you double tracked it and it cre- created this really lovely, like a Rhodes. It mm. just sounded like a Rhodes, but right. it, him playing guitar on How the beat section. Yeah, so I think maybe Right Between the Eyes had a nice balance of maybe more organic things with the... um I, I, I don't feel too bad about... No, that, no, that no, was no absolutely.
0: They, cra- <laughs> they were cracking records. It, it was yeah. interesting. Paul and I went to see Graham's Heartful of Songs show in Manchester a few weeks ago, which we loved. And it's interesting, he, he played Bridge to Your Heart. Have you heard his, his acoustic no, I, version no, of that? Very, very interesting. He, he told us on a, in a pod chat about a year ago, Paul, do you remember, he said that they tried <laughs> to do the song several times, and it just never worked. I think they were going with that straight, insistent kind of snare-driven groove, but they chose to do it in a kind of shuffle time, a bit like Little Deuce Scoop.
2: Yeah, I And it
3: worked. Oh, oh, that's how he played it in Yeah, yeah
2: that's how he played it, yeah. yeah.
3: How about, you know, that's a hit record, from yeah. start, start to finish, right from... Andrew being Andrew, yes. you know that irrepressible. The
0: tomfoolery,
3: the, the tomfoolery, the look at me, Mark, kind of, um, <laughs> you know that was he. He, he was a he, he. He was. I wouldn't say he was easy, you know, but his musical talents were just made it so worthwhile. And I was really happy that they, you know, made a hit record. I think Chris Neal was the producer. You know, it sounded big, and they were. They were. You know, and they had a bona fide smash, which is what is what they deserve. One, two, one, two, one,
1: two, three, four. Now.
3: And even though they didn't ask me to play drums in the video, um which I will, you know, I don't know. Of
2: course, if- you're you're on the video uh, with your ponytail, aren't you? On, um, on yes. the right between the eyes video.
3: Yeah, I was. I was always that. Uh, whenever they said, oh, "Do you want to be in a video?" I was like, "Yeah." <laughs> I to be in a play, and yes, it was a pretty, uh, pretty. It was like beyond a mullet the hairstyle. It was, <laughs> it was, it was mullet plus. <laughs> yeah. well...
2: That's that was the the 80s sounds have, have aged okay. I think the 80s fashions. That's you know we were we're all guilty of that. <laughs> yeah. But, but uh, I just want to briefly talk about Systematic, um, which uh, you, you mentioned. Um, I think that's I've got this I've got this this is kind of Muso stuff. I've got this playlist on Spotify called Saved by the Pre-Chorus, which is songs which have got a brilliant pre-chorus and. Well, no, I don't it's not like that. It's like the A, the A section and the chorus are actually the same, but the what makes it is the pre-chorus. and I've always loved the pre-chorus in in systematic the little bit. It goes it's just that bit.
3: It's a hollywood musical all of a sudden isn't it <laughs> yeah yeah you know it's it sounds like um yeah it sounds like bing is about to walk in you know it's it's you're right very musical it's basically an r b song you yeah know, it's grooving on one chord yeah goes to uh, you know say it went to the four chord or whatever and yeah. it, it sets you up to stick you back in the groove again and now you're singing a, a the hooky Systematic, yeah. I think we all had high hopes for that, but it wasn't to be, unfortunately. But but you're right, that's a, that's like when the sun breaks through, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, you, and
2: that's that's the end. And when Andrew's singing on, on top of that change, that's when it, it really does break through. That's what chromaticism isn't it? Yeah, that's right. That's, that's, right.
3: that's, that's probably Graham's,
2: Graham's yeah, touch. I don't know. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Can I play you another cracking pre chorus? Uh, this will okay. only take 30 seconds. Um, this is. You, you and Graham writing together, Phil, with uh, a, a chap called Campsy. Um, yeah. yeah. Let's just have yeah. a listen to, to this up to the chorus.
1: I got mine. You don't share your software. That's a crime
2: To Yao. Uh, yeah. Uh, is I, that you? The, is that you singing, Phil? Sorry to jump yeah, in there.
3: That's uh, yeah. That's uh, that's me. I think we're probably thinking of Aerosmith or some uh, a band like that with a with an actual rock singer. but yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> that's great. great! The shifting chords—they're they're great. Yeah, yeah. Spot, Mr. Graham Goldman. <laughs> in yeah, I,
2: he insisted on a, an unusual change there at that point. Did he?
3: Yeah, it's so refreshing. But um. Yeah, I, uh, that's quite unusual to think that, 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 that um, you know, the writer of The Things We Do for Love and could also, you know, we'd obviously started the day thinking we're going to try and write a song for a particular artist. Right. And, um, yeah, I think that, like, that's one of those songs where, again, you know, it's the difference between flying and plummeting. Mm-hmm. There's There's something, you know, it's a great verse, it's a great B verse, the chorus melody is good. I, in retrospect, I find the the lyrics sort of confusing. I'm not really sure what the chorus is about. So mm-hmm. as a producer now, if I was to do it, I, I would rewrite the lyrics and I think it would clarify and, and then have uh, Aerosmith record it and then everything would be great. But <laughs> yes. This is the dream world in which a writer-producer lives. Uh, you know, you just keep imagining like a teenager that somebody is going to you know, love your song. And of course, um, 99 times out of 100, they don't. (laughs) <laughs> uh, the, the um it's it's the management of failure that uh, is the key ingredient of a, a, a life in the music business is always going. sure here, here. let me
2: ask you this though: does it i mean what you know myself and sean and most of our contemporaries have you know 100 failure rate but, <laughs> when, you, <laughs> no, but, but when you i mean you've had some massive successes does it make it even worse when you've had a massive success because you think you've got to follow that you've got to follow that
3: Yeah, I I think one thing you realize if you, if uh, I'm grateful that I've had hits, Mm -hmm. and and then um, this is when you understand, like, um, you know, especially I I feel like in my career, I had hits, then I went cold, then I uh, had a really big hit, and then I got cold again, and then I had some more hits. And then, um, so each time that you kind of come, come back or especially when had the hip was torn i was so had had so like years a few years of being unemployed nobody wanted my stuff you mm. know and uh, when that happened it was like i'm really going to enjoy this and i don't mean in a self-indulgent take all the drugs type of way i i realized that something very special had happened for me and to take advantage of the opportunities. L- like working with Brian Adams that appeared Um so like professionally really enjoy the moment that chance to um to uh, work with people that you want to There's
5: nothing where you used to lie Conversation has run dry That's what's going on Nothing's fine, I'm torn. I'm all out of faith This is how I feel I'm cold and I am shame.
3: You also realize, and you try and sustain. You, you, you have a hit. You definitely, uh, if you have a, a smash, people, record companies look at your. You know, you're you're now a brand. They look at your other songs, and you go, you know what? This one's not so bad. Suddenly. The songs that wouldn't have made records um, get on records, mm. do get included. You might get asked to produce them. Maybe even a song like that one we just heard. Maybe not that one, but some, if it was a little bit better, after, after you've had a smash, they go, Jesus, this guy Phil an alley. He's so good. <coughs> we got to do this. Song. <laughs> Listen to this. I can't help myself. Who has ever thought of an idea like that? You know, it's you get this glow, but then sooner or later, a few years later, yeah, and he hits and you're, you're back where you started. People like the the Max Martin, you know, the songwriter mm-hmm. producer, Swedish songwriter, who yeah. just goes like from one brilliant song. He'll be Britney Spears, Backstreet Boys, Kelly Clarkson. Like through, through, as the decades go on, he keeps delivering number ones. The weekend, you know, it's just. It's it's mind-boggling, and everybody says he's the coolest guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, to sustain it is so difficult. In, in my experience, you know, that's that's. It's nice to ha- have had a hit and to then follow that up occasionally, because then it validates your career as like you might know what you're doing. But it's it seems to me it's very hard to do that. I'm
1: telling you now. Busy doing nothing all day long, oh yeah And now you smile Don't ever let the feeling go Come on. Yeah, yeah.
2: certainly Astral Drive is a complete hundred and eighty degrees from that. I, I was I'm trying. in that it just sounds um organics a bit of an overused word, but it just sounds like you passionately doing what yeah. you like and i was trying to work out why it doesn't sound like a pastiche because it doesn't even though you can it's fun for me as a todd fan picking out little bits from todd songs but it, it but it doesn't operate like that it really is it's um there's a fresh there's
0: it, a freshness isn't there Paul?
2: I, th- I think it may be down to the lyrics the lyrics are <clears> very heartfelt you know they talk about uh you know what do they say? Songwriters under forty talk about sex. Songwriters over forty talk about death or mortality. <laughs> <laughs> and and there's a lot of that in there. But it, but it's approached in a in, in a way that that sounds that is um, uh, ac- not acceptable, consumable if you want for want of a better phrase. I just. Uh, um, what am I trying to say? I think, despite all all your writing for higher astral drive, really hits you because it's clearly just you doing what you want to do.
3: Yeah, yeah. I, um, thank you for those kind comments. I take all of those. You know, it was definitely when you're singing. Um, you know, when you're when you're now the artist, it does seem kind of. You have to. T- have to be passionate about what you're singing. And of course, you're absolutely right. A lot of the songs are about like um maybe naively going they generally seem to have a positive outlook. Yeah. It's the odd one like um no one escapes, which is about death. Um, but um even then it, it, it's it's thinking about things as as a 56-year-old person instead of yeah, not, not pretending that um, I, I can write uh, uh, about, um, you know, my girl or my boy mm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. They're, they're more about, they're more, more idealistic, like thinking about life, the life I've had, the life I'd like to get to, finding peace, understanding, you know, the problems that we all have through through our lives. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Star,
0: stargazing it, is a really good example of that, isn't it, Phil? Yeah.
3: Yes, yeah, so in fact, uh, I said to my friend, the songwriter Boo Huardine. Oh, what, what about? Uh, I adore
0: the Bible, um, and I, I, oh, okay. I'm a big admirer of his. Yeah,
3: okay. and he's the loveliest, loveliest guy, he, and he's what a poet. Um, but I said to him, I said we're just chatting, uh, and I said, Boo, can you write me a song? Because he's he's just a born songwriter, and so I said, Can you write me a song? I got this he knew vaguely about astral drive and i said it's for it's for this and it the whole kind of thing it's sort of stargazing and the next day he sort of like sent this scrappy demo of a song called stargazing <laughs> 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 and it had he touched on all the right um things that are you know the lyrics were it, it was just it's such an interesting song the first verse is about Frank Sinatra and the mm-hmm. second verse is about the Beatles and then the third verse is, is about the, your 15 minutes of fame and the tabloids and, and so it's, a, it's such an interesting song and he, musically he kind of got what I was trying to do so that's the only song ever written for Astral Drive was um, and I was so chuffed that when you ask somebody Would you, can you write me a song and then they do and and then he just gave me carte blanche to wow.
0: And it's Boo Huarding, crikey. Boo Huarding, yeah. I'm jealous. I'm gonna to have to send you some Bible stuff. It's delicious. I've got one. Yeah. Of, I've got. I've got one of his solo projects as well, which I love.
2: I can remember them doing a song on the tube. Was it? Did they do a song about Mahela Jackson?
0: Yeah, they did. Yeah, and, I remember uh, that. H- Honey they be- did
2: a specially made video on the yeah, tube. Honey,
0: be good. Crystal Palace. Oh God, it's it's, it's really fantastic yeah. stuff. And and talking of of joyous vinyl, uh, Phil, I, I I I want to thank you for one particular production job um it's from one of my all-time favorite lps i played this every single day of my final year at uni it was side one of a cassette (laughs) backed backed with get this cupid and psyche by scritty Um, Oh, oh, nice this Yeah, yeah steve mcqueen prefab sprout what what a record and thank you so much for for your work on the glittering prize of that record i believe there's a story phil we were talking earlier about the way, over the years, you've, you've somehow managed, even in the 80s, to, to blend a very modern contemporary sound of production with extremely old-school techniques and ideas. Can you, can you delight us with a story about how you came up with the wonderful vocal sound on that record?
3: Well, the it, it panic set in. Uh, in those days, uh, you'd had the luxury of recording an A side and a B side in five days, and uh, prefab um, had the gift of having their new drummer was just like a great drummer. And uh, Neil Conti, so, yeah, Neil Conti. Um, so we recorded in rack one. I'll get I'll get to the to the singing because that was um, so. It's very unusual situation. We talked about drum machines. Now this is a group with a drummer. We, just, you know, set up the sounds. The first record I ever used MIDI on, which was a, a, a kind of a breakthrough for music technology. Mm. Then, so Paddy's playing this boat back rack, rich chords, you know, like eight eight note chords. Hmm. But as a guitarist, I don't think piano is his lead instrument, but he's making beautiful sounds. And so we had like a road sound MIDI'd, for the first time to a <laughs> pad sound, um, so there's a three three of them playing, and so uh, it's this doesn't very ha- happen very often. Like they do the first take, and I go, "Yep, that's Because <laughs> Neil, Neil is just, I guess, uh, a proper drama. Um, I think we tried a second take just to to go like, "Well, we better do another one just in case it gets even better." But we went with the first take. Um, so by the time then we spend the next couple of days, you know, doing the B side, uh, recording these two tracks alongside each other, various overdubs, doing the lead vocal. Um, when uh, the singer, uh, the lead singer and writer is Patty, and then his um girlfriend at the time, Wendy, had this ethereal voice, this really sweet. Uh, some voices you can when you record it you can turn the treble the brightness up and uh with some all that lovely breathy quality she had that but it was like self-compressed already ah. you could crank it and there wouldn't be a moment where it'd be like oh some kind of consonant would hit you the problem with with using lots of uh, changing the sound is sometimes it means um there'll be a moment where a t or a d or an s will just be like Will will just mutilate your ears because mm. you, you've hyped the sound so much that um, it becomes uncomfortable. But she had a beautiful, very controlled sound. Big part of the group sound, anyway. So by I think probably by Thursday, I'm going like there's something missing. There's something missing. There's something doesn't sound like a hit. You know, beautiful song and everything. We got the lead vocal, and then I recall, um well, I remembered uh, my the guy that taught me to engineer who who is an engineer called Greg Jackman had sh- had used the 10 CC vocal loop trick on a, on a record he'd made. So I'd seen him do it, which, which wow. you guys, you all know about it. But so recorded Wendy singing, um, ah, probably, you know, like each, uh, I don't know what key the song is in, but, Mm-hmm. There was probably about a fourth forethought went into it. Like these are some of the notes that would be mm-hmm. handy. So we would sing an R, say singing an A, then double track it, triple track it. Then I make it so that would last for two seconds, three seconds, and then I'd make it, make a, a tape loop of that, mm-hmm. uh, and then record that back onto another twenty-four track. So ended up it very much exactly the way uh, I presume Eric had figured out had how, uh, how to do that for I'm not in love I don't know was it That's Eric extraordinary or? it
0: was Lowell's idea actually and I think Eric was probably the the brains behind making it happen they right they ran tape loops Paul am I right they've they created these tape loops from the from these sort of multi-tracked Rs ah, in the same note and they they took them around mic stands yeah to keep them going in a sort of a, a nice neat horizontal loop
2: yeah but they were doing they were doing a long a long time are you saying phil you you didn't because it wasn't every note and it wasn't throughout the entire song were you kind of a bit more focused saying we need this chord here and we need this chord there
3: so i suppose the difference with us um so i uh, i might have used that mic stand trick When, when you have a tape loop um you sometimes it's 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 like the tape piece of tape might be three say uh, a meter long and so you have to in order to keep tension on the on the head that's going to play it back you have to put use a mic stand for yeah. the you have to do a kind of Peter robinson now so that note continues now it's going ah, even with those wobbles but it, um it's looping around and i record that onto the second 24 track temp machine now on this, and then I get the note E, and then I get um, G sharp, and pick out some other notes of Wendy sing. So, so when I push up all the faders on the it, what was in those days called the slave, it was the second 24 track tape machine. Yeah, it would be if I push up all the faders, it would just be this, it would just be like, um, I'm not in love times three because it was just probably you know. Uh, Eight or nine notes, singing a cluster chord that had never ever been heard in the world before. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So the trick was then to um, run the master tape with the with the bass and the drums and lead singing the chords, and then I would be manipulating with the mixing desk which notes to choose. Yes, that that I felt, um, and they weren't. It wasn't as though it was like a keyboard that you could go. I know what chord to play here. It was just <laughs> a question of pushing up faders and feeling your way through it. Yeah. There's one one nice moment where I hit the very speed and took it down, and it kind of goes, oh, oh yeah, yeah. Um, but um, I think out of a panic. So thank you, uh, Lul. Thank you, Eric. <laughs> um, uh, at the last moment, uh, I figured out the sound and and. Um, and it really seemed to add whatever this if wendy had done some regular ooze on the record but this sound seemed to was wendy times 10 and mm-hmm. luckily she was a great singer and had just had one of those god knows i wish i had a tone like that like andrew like certain people just have this quality to their voice doesn't matter how many lessons you have to learn how to sing you're born yeah. with that throat and, and oh, yeah. uh, those
1: vocal cords.
3: So and then we mixed it on the Friday, and Muff Winwood, brother of Steve, ex of um, what was the band called? Spencer uh, Davis. Thank you very much, Spencer Davis. Great bass player, mm-hmm. in, right. my, in my estimation. Like less is more, but um, he was head of uh, what was then CBS ANR, and R. Very straightforward. Came in, listened to it on the, you know, first time. Uh, you know, it's a four-minute song. He finishes. He goes, "It is a his." I can't do a Brummie accent. I'll try. That's a hit. That's a hit. Play, play it on the big speakers. And, uh, and uh, you know, very refreshingly um, honest. I'm so glad we made a hit because uh, I'd, I don't know what it, I wouldn't have. I imagine if he didn't like it, that would have been a horrible, difficult conversation because he would have been equally as blunt. Like mm.
1: what the fuck have you done?
3: <laughs> <laughs> now I say that in uh, with affection because, unfortunately, that was the only merit record I made for them because I, I I'd I'd made a faux pas in in the way I was then, as we discussed discussed with Waxer. I, I had a habit of rubbing people up the wrong way. Mm. You, you and, fell
2: uh... out. You fell out with Martin. Apparently, is that right?
3: Yeah. And I feel sorry about that. And I'm sorry that Martin is always quoted as, you know, um, I was the bad guy. I I was just like, I was a young, in my defense, I go like, I'm probably 24, 25. I got all this pressure, which I'd asked for. I wanted to be a record producer, but I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't have great. Um, yeah. Some people say I'm a sociopath, um, <laughs> <laughs> and other people go even further, but, uh, You know, I I would have my, I'd like to think I had my eyes on the prize and sometimes not the most attractive parts of my personality would appear in my drive to try and get the record done. Um, Because I'd seen someone like Mickey most, I'd worked as his his assistant for years. And of course, everybody respected him. Mm -hmm. There would be none of this palaver going on about questioning the producer. Mm -hmm. Um, so, but I hadn't really earned my spurs. But I acted like I'd seen him act, where you just, if there's a moment of dissent, you just squash it, um, which is is not an <laughs> it's not an attractive
0: trait. But even if you write about his bass playing, for example,
3: well, I don't know if I was wrong or right. I, I, that's what ended up on the record. And to Muff's credit, uh, they released that record. It 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 uh, flopped. Um, when Tom made the album, he remixed it. They released it again. It flopped. Um, Then they released it a third time, and it, even then, it was like a. It got in the top thirty, maybe twenty-four. Mm-hmm. So, but so many people come, you know, like yourselves, come to me and say, "Oh, you know, what a great job!" Obviously, it's Paddy's it's Patty's song and and their performance, but uh, uh, but I think with that you know, as we've discussed with the 10cc, the cleverness of that pre-sampler. This, what the hell is that sound? Yeah. You know, that... Um... But and but you might
0: be the only producer, Phil, who's ever authentically copied that process, don't you think, Paul? Oh, they, oh. With, the sound has been emulated. Billy Joel, for example, he's emulated oh, the sound. just so you are, yeah. Yeah, but you might one. have been the only person to actually physically stick those parts on... Yeah. On, on a loop. So well done, you. Well done, you. And um, <laughs> if if we tip our hat to Martin, you played bass on Love Cats. So stick that yes. up your pipe and smoke yeah. <laughs> oh, no,
3: no, 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 no. I am uh, I,
0: I, uh, I say that tongue in cheek.
3: Yes, of course. I. I whenever uh, i as being a musician um or or a producer or a mixer you know you do i have found myself without employment and often it's my bass playing that i that i fall back on so i'm i'm really glad that i have that and that um i played on a couple of records as a bass player um sure yeah i, I lo- yeah i lo- i love having that in the uh, in the locker to bring out every now and then.
0: Fabulous. You've given us so much for our locker today, Phil, and thanks for spending so long chatting. It's been really, really fun, this. Back I, at you guys. I hope you've enjoyed yeah. it too.
3: Yeah, of course I have, yeah. It's <laughs> it's both, it's lovely to hear you, um, you know, like to be reminded of some of these records and also to talk about Astral Drive, but just to talk about music with musicians, studio stuff because um thankfully i can still remember most of it and, uh, <laughs> and it's been you know it's just, it's it's been my career i've been lucky enough um so uh yeah it's it's nice now to be to, to, to share it with things like podcasts and yeah. you yeah, know yeah. We, could, we could go on and on forever and actually I, we we probably pre- will won't we yeah. We haven't actually broken into a full-scale argument yet, but... Uh. No, no, that's right.
2: Well, we should talk about Weezer then, but, or maybe maybe not, because I know... Yeah, because I, I,
0: I wasn't impressed with the, with the song at all, but you, you, you're totally right, Phil. Um, that is a lol middle eight, isn't it?
3: Well, with a song that's made of ten middle eights, that's uh, (laughs) yeah. And I played, I played it to Graham. I said, I I sent that to Graham years ago when I first heard it. I was like, check out this bit, and he had the same reaction as you guys. Was like, this is a piece of shit. No, 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 this. I quite like Weezer as well. I understand that. It's just this bit here. Ooh, baby. All that you make that. me stand
2: up yeah. exactly,
3: yeah. What a, what a special sound! I've never worked with LOL, I've never met him, mm-hmm. but um, that he always seemed to be the face of 10cc to me, and and I loved his voice, yeah. Four great singers, his was the one that was uh always caught my ear. Thank you very much, and uh, thanks, guys.
0: been listening to the consequences podcast produced by paul mcnulty and sean McCreevy. thanks for listening
2: you know i have my own little podcast what well, i did oh with... we've got to insert yes sorry sorry can, no no can i we... didn't want to i didn't want to plug it that's now. What... i wanted to i've written it yeah, down can, we, can... Yeah.
3: like for instance um we had brian adams co-writer jim balance who wrote some you know with brian wrote some massive summer 69 cuts like a knife and um we were talking about stuff and I was basically, basically saying I like your songs that you've written with Brian much better than the songs Brian has written with Mutt Lang. Okay. <laughs> and he was really, really fear. He's such an honourable guy. And he called me up the next day and he said, can you please take that bit out? He didn't say anything wrong. It was mm-hmm. me going, "You're because I played the songs with Brian in the yeah, show. Yeah. And I go, listen. I'm telling you, when you're standing on the stage and we're playing your songs, it all fits. When you're playing Mutt's songs, you go like, has this bit been bolted on? You know, like, <laughs> we, we Do we need a screwdriver for this song? You know, because it just felt like something. A- a- anyway, so I understand that reticence, that sometimes it's not just the cursing or the being libelous. You just feel uncomfortable <laughs> about something you re- recollected. Um, so. Is
2: is Song Stripper with Tim Jackson still going? Ha- I know there hasn't been a new episode for quite a while. I'm waiting for the new one.
3: Yeah, the last one we did with was with the Bond composer David Arnold, which was a cracker. Yeah, mm. yeah. But, yeah. but um, you, one reason or another, this year we 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 uh, just got a little bit sidetracked, and uh, so we plan plan to pick it up again at some point. But uh, oh, of course, there's an episode with Graham with Tony Hatch. You know the Oh, oh yeah, fantastic.
2: there's a there's a great episode with Egg White that was my favorite. You yeah. really felt you were in the room writing, chasing pavements. Oh, that was brilliant. Yeah, he's he's
3: he he was he was pretty edgy, and uh, you know, good and a, and a, yeah, and a good guest. But uh, it's fun doing this, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's great. It is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because you find out so much stuff. But anyway, yeah, and know, and,
0: and you get to meet really great people, and we we've met people kind of at the top of fame and yeah. and at the bottom of fame and and uh, everyone's just has got such an interesting
3: story to tell yeah, yeah certainly yeah there's always a, where there's a hit there's a writ
0: yes least. yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> really but uh, phil this has been a joy thanks so much
3: thanks guys thanks for taking the time yeah Thank you, too. you phil see you Now, now give me a little background uh, about the pair of you are, are you both musicians or
2: uh... we are um, we're musicians who you know like many don't earn a living through it I see the
3: drum set in the back oh yeah that's right <laughs> yeah I'm
2: a I'm a I'm a drummer in a t-rex tribute band uh, amongst other things yeah yeah which I'm really enjoying so I didn't know much about t-rex um, um was that? Um, I always wonder if it
3: was actually Clem Cattini playing. There's this famous session drummer called Clem Cattini. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: Did he play on those records, or did Bill Legend? Uh, I'm pretty sure it was Bill Legend because he was a he was a bloody good drummer in his own right.
3: The sexy groove. He
2: yeah, he can
3: suggest that. Um, and then there's that one particular fill that it's that's on um, maybe Get It On where it
2: goes like flash. <clears throat> yeah that's right and they're quite easy so you know
1: um,
2: (laughs) the t-rex is a great project for me because you know it's at the edge of my technique but not beyond it so it's just about the right thing for me to
3: you've got to swing if you play those simple beats you've got to have a feel you Mm. you know it's not it's it's keep the tempo but yeah, it's a certain thing. Yeah. How, yeah. you know, as I've discovered playing with great with great drummers, is they'll ju- just, uh, they'll just they'll pl- they'll just play kick snare kick snare kick snare, and you go, this fit feels amazing.
2: Yeah, I no, you know. It, and then it's
3: a fill it's like. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> but you're absolutely right. There, there's such a, a triplety compound time thing going on, isn't there, with that T Rex stuff? Yeah, or, it, it, it rolls, sounds simple, it but. I know plenty of drummers who can't play that sort of shuffle uh, style. Well, uh, it maybe
2: it, including me. I mean, I'm getting. I like getting what I there. heard.
3: The demo was uh, great. Actually. Oh yeah, the,
2: de- the the demo's not too bad. I forgot about that.
3: Have you heard the story about uh, Rick Wakeman saying when he was a session player, but he was skint, and he was hanging around the pub near where the studio was, and uh, Mark boland came in and. Said, how's, you know, like he knew him and he said, how's mm. it going? And he's like, I got no keys. He said, come um, on. What, I think it might be get it on again. There's like a piano trip, you know, like a kind of Jerry Lee Lewis piano. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he said, he just got that session because Mark felt sorry for him and said, come <laughs> down the studio. We'll, you know, we'll pay you. Just do this twice on the record. <laughs> and that's uh, so, it's so lovely. Tony Visconti, of course, knew what he, I still knows what he's doing. You know, not a bad bass player either. No, No, absolutely. fantastic.
2: I'm right in the middle of his autobiography, actually. the Visconti, which I bought in a charity shop about a week ago. It's great. You know, it's um, easy.
3: And what era is that from, Paul?
2: Well, I think the book, Bowie was still alive when the book came out. I haven't got to the end of it, but I suspect it's like just after 2000. It's called Bolan, Bowie and the Boy from Brooklyn. You know, which, which obviously is Visconti It's a really, really nice one, it's a good book no, that sounds really I, I, interesting, I would, Paul I'd love
3: to, meet. that's somebody I'd love to meet uh, Visconti Because mm. right. like, all those great records That it isn't, not even including Thin Lizzy, you know mm. Massive s- smash hits And uh, he just Happened to be in the room
2: What a coincidence <laughs> <laughs> uh, Yeah, that's what a producer
1: does, right Tell <laughs>